This episode of The Energy Gang is brought to you by C-Power Energy Management. C-Power provides demand-side energy management solutions that help keep you green and earn revenue in the process. C-Power is a leading national provider of demand response curtailment programs that pay you for shedding load when the grid is stressed. C-Power can also help organizations in multiple open energy markets develop a custom energy management strategy designed to achieve your green energy goals and monetize your energy assets nationwide. C-Power is here to help you, to help you save on energy costs, earn revenue by leveraging your organization's energy resources, enhance your sustainability efforts, and contribute to a balanced, reliable grid. Who could ask for more? Find out more about C-Power's demand-side energy management solutions at cpowerenergymanagement.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. This week, blustery coal magnate Robert Murray fights the First Amendment and loses. The Kochs spend millions to fight environmental regulations and win. And Trump brags about his big win in solar. Here with me to talk about these stories stretched from coast to coast are winning combination Catherine Hamilton and Julia Piper. Jigger Shaw is still on vacation this week. Catherine is a partner with 38 North Solutions. She comes to us from Washington, D.C. Hello, Catherine. Hi. Hope everybody's doing well this week. Always. Julia Piper is GTM senior editor. She's out in Los Angeles, California. She's becoming a regular part of the gang here. Hello, Julia. Hello. Thanks for having me back. So I'm having a hard time keeping up with the outrage cycle these days. I think it's time to start this week's show on a lighter note with a comedian, a coal baron, and a squirrel. Or to be more accurate, John Oliver, Bob Murray, and Mr. Nutterbutter. Last June, John Oliver devoted a 25-minute segment to the struggling coal industry on his HBO show Last Week Tonight, and he outlined many of the forces hurting coal that we often discuss right here on this show, in his own unique way, of course. And at the end of that segment, he turned his attention to Bob Murray, the CEO of Murray Energy, an Ohio mining company. Murray is the unofficial coal surrogate to the Trump administration. He's, you know, one of the most bombastic commentators on the politics of coal. He was very vocal during the Obama administration, claiming those jobs could come back if someone replaced Obama. And so Oliver decided to have a little fun with it. The point here is Trump needs to stop lying to coal miners. We all do. Stop telling them that that their jobs are all coming back when they're not. Stop telling them that coal is clean when it isn't. And stop pretending that this isn't an industry in the middle of a difficult and painful, albeit necessary, transition. An honest conversation about coal and its miners needs to be had, and we should neither cease nor desist from having it. Which actually reminds me, one more thing here. Um, Bob Murray, I didn't really plan for so much of this piece to be about you, but you kind of forced my hand on that one. (laughs) And I know that you are probably going to sue me, but you know what? I stand by everything I said. Although, just to reiterate, I do not think you claimed a squirrel talk to you. (laughs) Even by your standard, that would be a pretty ridiculous thing to say. So I I believe that you have never been spoken to by a squirrel. Until that is... Tonight. Look, Bob! Look! Look, Bob! It's, it's Mr. Nutterbutter, Bob! No. According to one satirical account in a miners' workers' journal, Murray once claimed that a squirrel gave him the idea to start his own mining company. Um, which is why you heard that squirrel clip. Easy fodder for John Oliver, who called Murray a geriatric Dr. Evil. 
And that made him the target of Murray's lawyers. Murray sued Time Warner and HBO for defamation following his pattern of targeting media organizations that are remotely critical of him. Uh, Most notably, he sued the Times, the New York Times, last May. So that suit against Oliver was thrown out by the judge last week. And John Oliver gloated about it on Sunday's episode, promising to come out even harder against Murray. As I think we know, now now is not the time for victory laps. It's not a time for gloating. It's not a time for saying, hey, we won, and just rubbing it in the face of the person who lost over and over again. That time will come. Oh, it will come. And I promise that we will discuss this whole case as soon as we are able to. Until then, my furry friend. Oh, wait, he'll be back. I promise he will be back. Okay, Catherine, let's... Just um, recap, who is Bob Murray and why is he so influential in the coal conversation? So Bob Murray was born into and has lived his entire life in coal. His dad was a coal miner, was paralyzed in an accident when Murray was a small child. He lied about his age so he could work in a coal mine. He's been injured multiple times. He has a degree in coal mining. He lives and literally breathes coal mining. So when he was fired from his position at North American Coal Company in 1987, that's when evidently on his porch, a predecessor to Mr. Nutterbutter came to him and said, you should open your own mines. And that's when he started opening his own mines and started his own company. And that's where it all got started. He's lived his entire life in coal. He's a self-made man. He's very defensive um, and really fights back on lawsuits and often fights back on change in the industry. Although I talked to some folks who also are in West Virginia and they said, you know, sometimes when he fights back, it's because the technology is not ready to be put into place. So there's a little bit of context around there. But yes, basically, he's kind of want, wanted the industry to stay the way it is, um, because it's what it, it's what it's who he is. Indeed. Bob Murray is um, one of these guys who's easy to pick on because he's so outspoken. And usually the most outspoken and fierce people are the most hypocritical. So yeah, Bob Murray has lived his life in coal. And you, you can't take that away from him um, in terms of his career. But he's also a CEO who pretends to fight for his coal workers. And when you look across his career, he uh, has, you know, consistently laid people off his the bonuses that he has given to workers have been uh, inconsequential and and outright laughable. And in fact, John Oliver mentions those in um, in the segment. Uh, He has been a vociferous foe of improving regulations that uh, help with black lung disease and pollutants that hurt workers. He's fought against um, improving health insurance for workers. So, uh, you know, there's a reason why a guy like John Oliver picks on (laughs) Bob Murray, because, you know, all the things that he claims in public, and he goes on television quite a bit to lambast anyone who is not in support of the coal industry. Um, Pretty much everything he says, his his career as a CEO, he has um, done the exact opposite. Yeah, I find that interesting, the the black lung point in particular, that you know, you see companies and CEOs claiming to say they're working on behalf of their workers, and yet it seems to be a really horrible record on healthcare in this industry. Um, 
you know, Oliver did call that out in his segment. Meanwhile, we have the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health um, finding the highest number of cases of complicated black lung just last month in a, in a report than they have ever, than they've actually seen since the 1990s. Like rates are up right now. Um, that's apparently because of mining thinner coal seams and that contains silica. But uh, Murray is actively trying to fight, as you mentioned, uh, increased uh, federal regulation on um, those kinds of pollutants that, that give people black lungs. So I just find that hypocrisy very confusing and, and disingenuous. If you look at the fatalities in the coal industry writ large, you can see 2010 was a peak because of the upper big branch mine blast. It killed 29 people. And then they started decline, leveled out a little bit. But but in 2017, they increased from 2016. So it's still an incredibly dangerous business to be in, regardless of black lung. Well, that's right. And we can't talk about Bob Murray without talking about the Crandall Canyon mine collapse. And this was a Utah mine that collapsed in 2007, where six miners were killed, and later a few rescue workers were killed, and the the miners were never found. And, you know, during the rescue operations, Bob Murray was out giving these impassioned speeches to the press about how um, he had this great safety record and how the media was out to get him and how it was an earthquake that had caused the problem and a federal investigation found that it was not seismic activity, that it was in fact the drilling operations that caused uh, geological instability that caused the mining collapse. And to this day, Bob Murray has used legal tactics to fight against anyone who claims um, that he lied about the, the the earthquake being the cause. In fact, he tried to sue the New York Times at last May for libel in, because the New York Times published an op-ed saying that essentially Murray was, you know, fabricating this story. Um, so, you know, Murray has a, a pretty spotty record himself. And this was another area of target for John Oliver, which was another reason why Murray decided to go after him. I think it's interesting to see if uh, it's true that Murray also had a hand in the grid reliability rule that FERC took up at the request of the Department of Energy. There were photos of Secretary Perry meeting with um, Bob Murray and I guess basically taking the playbook from Murray and putting that into a NOPER rule. Uh, Murray denies this, but clearly they've got the ear of the president and the administration and we'll see apparently uh, the DOE is exploring other ways to prop up coal. So we'll see how this actually plays out in policy terms. Speaking of politics, there there was plenty of politics infused in this lawsuit. And um, Bob Murray couldn't help but bring Hillary Clinton into this, right? Yeah. Yeah. The lawsuit names uh, HBO's parent company, Time Warner, which uh, donated to Hillary Clinton. They name it. They named Time Warner as a top 10 donor. Um, and so they made this really political in the lawsuit against John Oliver, saying that uh, uh, Time Warner is out to get Bob Murray, pointing to Clinton's comments uh, one event where she said, we're going to put a lot of coal miners out of business. But that quote is taken out of context in the lawsuit. And uh, it's just interesting how the 2016 presidential election is still very prevalent in oh, so many areas here. Yeah, I would just give John Oliver a shout out too for all of the work he's done really digging beneath the surface in a lot of these issues, not just on mining, but also on climate change. He's one of the only reporters in, in these shows that's done that. And granted, it's a satire show, but he also does a lot of educating and a lot of real reporting. 
one last note about this, and the reason why I brought this up is a because it's you know it's relevant to our audience, and we've talked about struggles in coal for a while, and the segment is quite funny. So if you want to go watch it, I recommend checking it out. But um, you know we're in an era where the president is basically threatening to lash out at the press for um, publishing things that he does not like, and there is an administration right now, or an entire you know party that is at war with the press. And so this is a reminder that uh, the First Amendment is a very powerful tool. And you have to, you have to prove a lot uh, in order to, you know, back up these claims that somehow the, the press is out to get you or hurting your career or knowingly spreading lies. And, um, you know, this is a little bit of a different case, because this was satirical use of material. But this is a tactic used by people who don't like what's written or said about them in the press. Uh, it is often used to to chill free speech. And so let's chalk this one up as a, as a win for free speech during a time when uh, it's kind of dark for, for the press and, and the media. The Energy Gang is brought to you by C-Power Energy Management. If you're an energy manager for an organization with sites all around the country, you learn pretty quickly that no two energy markets are alike. How you manage your commercial or industrial power costs in Pennsylvania might be very different from your strategy in California or Massachusetts. So how do you develop an energy management strategy that works wherever you are? Well, it's easy. Turn to C-Power Energy Management. C-Power's highly qualified and experienced teams work with you to develop a C-Powered strategy that combines the best of each market's demand management programs with the performance solutions that help you save earn, and operate more efficiently. You're happy, the environment is happy, and most importantly, your customers are happy. National experience plus local expertise is just one way C-Power provides demand-side energy management solutions to customers operating in all of the nation's open energy markets. Find out how you can save, earn, and reach your green energy goals at cpowerenergymanagement.com. Let's turn to a related subject, this one a few shades darker. On Wednesday, The Intercept published some documents from the Seminar Network, the well-funded political machine run by industrialist billionaires Charles and David Koch. This is a group spending hundreds of millions of dollars in politics right now with a plan to spend 300 to 400 million on 2018 midterm elections alone. I mean, that's like I can't even wrap my head around that number. The documents put some numbers to the Koch network itself in support of the tax bill alone. The group claims to have connected with nearly 2 million activists for grassroots organizing and knocked on 33,000 doors in support of that tax bill. It also says they organized 100 rallies. They also outline achievements claimed by the group under the Trump administration including rolling back the clean power plan, uh, EPA and BLM water regulations, and the Paris Climate Agreement. So why are we turning to the Kochs now? We know they have money. We know they're a major influence in conservative politics, the influencer. It's the sheer scope of influence that we're witnessing, though, that, that is the reason why we're talking about this. Um, again, the Koch Network is spending this year up to $400 million in elections for midterms. Um, and the Kochs are unabashedly the biggest spenders on climate deniers. And the more money they spend, the more frozen climate politics become. So, so Catherine, the Kochs are taking a lot of credit here in these documents for killing climate rules. How much credit do you think they deserve? Yeah, they've been in this for the long game. And remember, unlike Murray, 
who is really a self-made man. These guys were born into a lot of money. They're libertarians. They're very ideological and they are very, very wealthy. So for, for some perspective, go and read Jane Mayer's dark money book that came out in 2016 and you'll get a kind of glimpse of what that means and where their dad came from and what he did. But they've been they've been really unleashed since 2010. They've been working a long time, but in, they're in it for the long haul. But 2010 was the Citizens United case that allowed organizations to be set up that are under the stack tax structure of a 501c4. So those are social welfare corporations that do not have to disclose what money is spent. And so a lot of these organizations have been used to do any number of issue and political campaigns with unlimited resources, and you don't have to say where those come from. So a lot of these initiatives, you can't even trace. Now, full disclosure, I have a 501c4 that I that we use to do issue campaigns on things like reduced methane emissions or increased parkland. But a lot of these are being used by the Koch brothers to push their very conservative and influential agenda. I think it is interesting, though, to see how there might be some fissures in the sort of conservative coke funded groups as it as it with respect to climate uh, because we saw the American Legislative Exchange Council come out against import tariffs uh, in the solar industry which the Trump administration put in place and, and championed um, we also saw in December at the at Alex um, meeting that they rejected a resolution to go after the endangerment finding they were going to make it a policy priority to urge the EPA to overturn that. And you interestingly saw some of the members of ALEC, which is is funded by the Kochs in large part, um, you saw other members pushing back against that, not wanting to open up that can of worms. Those members included um, the uh, Edison Electric Institute, the utility lobby, as well as Chevron, Honeywell, and UPS. So you see even in the Koch network, um, I think some interesting uh, divisions there. They might not be quite as hardline in everything they do, at least as with respect to Alec and the way that they're addressing some clean energy climate related issues. Yeah, there's been an interesting evolution in my mind. Um, you know, when the when the Cokes um, were like f- first, when they were first reported on in like 2008 or 2009, when Americans for Prosperity started gaining a lot of uh, attention and power. There was this sense that like the Kochs were these secret people operating behind the scenes, pulling these strings and using front groups to further their agenda. And at that time, it was true. And, you know, since Citizen United, we certainly see a lot of dark money swirling around. So it's hard to, to trace it back to its original source. And there has been some good reporting showing, you know, a lot of this money is coming from the Kochs. But with that said, they're pushing their agenda pretty publicly now. They're giving interviews. They're talking about everything uh, from climate change to gun rights to, um, you know, labor laws, pretty much everything. And so this is a dramatic departure from a decade ago when the Kochs were very secretive and quiet about what they were working on. So like, it's easy to describe the Kochs as, um, you know, having these tentacles and engaging in shady practices. But I don't actually think that that's the accurate way to describe them anymore. Because like, they're very public about what it is they want to do. And they've been very public recently about talking about climate change. Um, Some of their folks who've led their efforts at Americans for Prosperity, for example, have said, 
we made it impossible for Republicans to talk about climate change. And they all know now that if they talk about it, we're going to spend millions of dollars against them. And that is not a secret. Yeah, they also have these groups that they're trying to get veterans for America, generation opportunity to try to get young people involved. And I talked to someone today about this group called Libre Initiative, which is to try to get uh, Latin American voters engaged. So what they've done is this is a long game because this it's tough with the immigration issue in the position it is in right now with the White House, but they're putting a lot of money in to help people from Puerto Rico move to Florida. There are like 500,000 people that have, that are in Florida from Puerto Rico. They're supporting them. They're re-registering them to vote. This is about building their base of support. And all of this, remember, goes back to help them. The tax bill that they worked so hard to get passed helps them materially, commercially, all of these guys, as as libertarian and ideological as they are, this is all helping their bottom line. Yeah, and, and that's where it, the reporting on this was actually most interesting. The Intercept f- published two different documents, one on their long list of achievements, including some of these environmental things that I mentioned, and one specifically on the tax law. And they the language that they used to champion this tax bill— um, was to tamper any discussion of deficits or an out-of-whack budget, issues that they pushed so hard during the Obama administration. Right. I was just I was going to say, yeah, I, I lived in D.C. for four and a half years, not the longest time, but I feel like this is kind of political status quo. Like People have issues. They put out strategy documents on them. They have meetings about them. They try to be clear in their messaging. If you care about that issue, uh, that sounds pretty effective. Like you would want to marshal your resources in a in a good way, come up with creative political solutions. I'm sure people are doing that in progressive and democratic circles as well, but there's not maybe the same uh, response um, because, especially in our community, where the obviously climate is a major issue that a lot of people want to address. So whether or not you like the the issues that the Kochs are taking up, I think you've got to take a step back and say, wow, they're being pretty darn effective. Why have this conversation now? Going back to my initial question, you know, we're a decade on from a very important, what I consider one of the most important political documents floating around Congress in the last decade. And it's probably not one that a lot of people know about. And that is the no climate tax pledge that was pushed by Americans for prosperity Um, And this was a document that they got a lot of Republicans to sign. And at the same time, Grover Norquist's group, Americans for Tax Reform, was pushing a similar pledge. And getting these names on paper so that the network could track them and publicly shame them and then spend money against them if they decided to renege on that pledge was probably one of the most effective tools that they could uh, put in place to to stop any climate action. And you had a number of Republicans who at that time were talking about clean energy and climate change who have since wiped it from their websites, have been voted out of office because millions of dollars were spent against them or who have just shut up. Um, So I think that document is probably one of the most important documents around this issue uh, of the last decade. Yeah. And what this has done is it served through their primarying people, Republican candidates who were at all centrists. It's caused the Republican Party to be so far to the right. Um, And the folks that are anywhere near the center who are, say, in the Climate Solutions Caucus, they're in swing districts. 
those are folks who are going to lose their seats, which means that you just continue to have the right moving further to the right and having fewer people on the Republican Party in the center to work with. Do you think there'll ever be a progressive group quite like this? I mean, are there any sort of lessons to be learned? This is not ideal for democracy, but I just think it's an interesting case study how the Kochs have been able to do what they've been able to do. Well, Tom Steyer is is probably the closest thing to it, right? I mean, he's he's pledging to put money behind, and Michael Bloomberg as well. These are folks who who said we'll put money behind candidates who are pro climate. Uh, it's just not the same scope, though. Yeah, I wonder if you got a bunch of people down in Florida. Maybe someone is doing this, reaching out to Puerto Ricans, saying, "Hey, you were hit by a massive storm. Do you know what causes that? Climate change," and kind of battle some of the disinformation out there. It seems like an opportunity. And again, maybe someone's doing it, but maybe take a lesson from the Coke uh, book and uh, see how you can un- use it to advance other causes. Yeah. I mean, I do know that there are there's another progressive group called Climate Hawks Vote. And um, that's a, a number of, um, of, of of climate advocates who, you know, four or five years ago, I may be wrong on the timing, but it was it was a few years ago, they got together and said, we're focusing on like the presidency and, you know, key members of Congress, and we're not focusing on local races around the country. And they started putting money behind local races. At the same time, Steyer made the same realization and started putting money in in key races where um, they could get climate champions elected. So uh, it's happening, but it's not even close to the scale that the Cokes are spending. And, And I'll just say one last thing, like, there's a lot of people and uh, onlookers who are waiting for Republicans to declare the political environment safe to talk about climate change, well, it's not ever going to be safe. If you have a group that is willing to spend $400 million in a year on midterm elections and basically play the long game, uh, as Catherine described it, there is never going to be a safe moment to talk about this. And that's just the nature of politics today. So the money is going to come after you full throttle. And if you're going to have a Republican candidate who's going to talk about this issue, they better be damn prepared to stand up to that money that's going to get thrown at them. And I don't see many Republicans who are willing to do that. So and just so we don't get too cynical about this, uh, because as you know, I'm always an optimist. um, The Koch brothers can't be everybody's vote. They can throw monies and money into races, but they can't vote. So it's still really important for whoever the candidate is to go out and meet with people and talk with people and have people ask questions and have that person answer honestly as to what their stance is. And in the end, constituents vote. We turn back to solar politics for our final story. In the last three years, Trump has probably mentioned solar two or three times. You could definitely count the number on one hand. I don't know exactly what the number is, but it's very, very minimal. He's completely ignored the fact that solar is one of the fastest growing industries in America today. But all of a sudden, Trump is celebrating a big win for solar. In a meeting this week with governors, Trump declared that his tariffs were helping reopen plants that had been closed for a long time. Uh, Let's just come out and say it. That is false. We decided it was time to check in on this, given our earlier conversations with Julia a few weeks ago. And Julia really has been the one checking up on this. She's done some great reporting um, since, you know, we discussed this on the Energy Gang, and we're going to tap what she has uncovered. So, so Julia, how does reality square with the president's claims to governors? And, And what did he actually say? 
Right. So his quote was, we had 32 solar panel plants in the U.S. Of the 32, 30 were closed, and the remaining two were on life-to-life resuscitation, basically dead. Uh, Now, quote, they're talking about opening up many of them, reopening plants that have been closed for a very long time. He went on to mention that there are, quote, at least five plants in the works. Um, He went on to mention washing machine plants expanding, but that five seemed to be specific to the solar industry. Um, He also mentioned that the U.S. makes better solar panels than China. On the one hand, you could say the president may not have all the figures at his fingertips. So um, it is true that a lot of companies, uh, U.S. manufacturing companies, did go bankrupt over the past few years. But it's not true that there were only two operational solar manufacturers, Tesla, Mission Solar, and others were still working at the end of last year. And the 30 number um, just doesn't totally make sense. Um, Because we care about specifics, I did look into this, and uh, it kind of tells an interesting story about where all these supposed 30 companies ended up. Well, let's hear it. You've done some trolling around and figured out uh, what and where and how these companies came into being and collapsed and where they stand now. So let's let's uh, hear what you found out. Right. Okay. So um, on the five plants opening, again, um, we know Jinko Solar is looking at a facility in the U.S. Also, um, United Renewable Energy, a vertically integrated uh, PV maker from Taiwan, is looking to come to the U.S. Those are seem to be legitimately new factories here. But there doesn't seem to be five. It's possible that the president knows something we don't. But that is not borne out um, in anything Wait, no, public. No, can, can we just say no? It's probably not <laughs> probable. Like the president just throws out numbers. Right. I mean, <laughs> I'm just trying to be fair and balanced. Yes, um, of course. Uh, and so getting back to the 30. So um, the the petitioners of the Section 201 trade case, Cineva and Solar World, talked about 30, com- sorry, talked about 28 companies going bankrupt. So maybe the 30 is in reference to that talking point from the petitioners. Interestingly, the US ITC's staff report that was you know, submitted during the trade case process, uh, on page 95 of the 428-page beauty, um, you will find their list of US firms uh, with CSPV production facilities that opened or closed between 2012 and 2017. They note 26 closures, Two of those are partial closure closures. They are Mission Solar's cell business and Solar World California module plant. Of course, those two companies are still generally operating. Um, and and you look even closer at some of those companies, which is actually something that Abigail Ross Hopper at SIA pointed out in a statement. You know, many of them are not really cell and panel manufacturers, and they did not necessarily all go out of business because of imports. So it, it is misleading on the president's part, uh, however he got the information to sort of chalk up 30, 28, 26, whatever the number is, uh, bankruptcies to China or other imports. Because you have companies like Twin Creek Technologies, which is not a cell and module manufacturer. It's actually a technology company that developed cheaper manufacturing equipment for solar modules, as well as sensors and other devices. Um, Then you have other confusing cases like one Soltech out of Texas. Um, The company had to pay an $8.5 million fine for labeling panels made in America that were actually imported from China. So uh, they filed for bankruptcy in 2013 Interestingly, you Google them, it seems like they're open. Not really sure 
why that is. Other firms on the ITC list are indeed closed, show no signs of reopening as far as I can tell. Soltex seems to be open, but I'm not sure if that's just a Google glitch or what. Um, so again, it does. It seems to be uh, a little odd for the president to say, okay, 30 companies have gone bankrupt and now they're reopening. As far as I can tell, there's no evidence of that. And some companies on the list aren't at all really related to the trade case. Well, let me just say, first, I admire your reporting and it's important that we get to the bottom of this and track all this stuff. So great job on that. I will say that you are uh, giving the president the benefit of the doubt here. I mean, of course he's going to lie about it. Like this, he doesn't, there's, there's nothing that comes out of his mouth that is ever truthful. Uh, he just kind of picks a number. He stays in the ballpark of, you know, whatever the petitioners claims he, he reads something or someone tells him something and that's the number he's going to throw out there. So I don't think we should attribute the president to sticking to some sort of number that we don't know about, but I will say the reporting itself and, and trying to track down these plants is, is, is really good. You know, you gotta, when the president says something, you gotta check it out and, uh, I think that a lot of politicians use talking points, not just Trump. So, you know, I wanted to give his statements the the credibility and the judgment that they deserve. <laughs> Julia, I really appreciate you getting to the bottom of this, too. Um, and one question I wanted to ask you was, is how does this... Um, the new plants that you do see either growing or coming online shake out compared to the layoffs that have been announced. For example, SunPower just announced they were going to lay off 10% of their workforce. So how does that all shake out? Yeah, I don't think we totally know yet what the job impact is going to be. It's So SunPower, as you noted, um, filed that they're going to lay off 3% of their staff. That is global. So I'm not sure how many US jobs that amounts to. Meanwhile, I mentioned the Jinko facility that's opening up. Um, that's supposed to create several hundred jobs. We're assuming, we don't know the details totally, but it's assuming it's a plant in Jacksonville, Florida. Some other local documents there show, I believe, up to 800 jobs or something like that. But this facility may never come to fruition or may not create that many jobs in the end. We, we don't know. SIA um, is quoting 23,000 jobs will be lost this year alone. I think that'll be interesting to see too. We've seen innovation come out, new financing tools. Um, we've heard of companies saying they're just going to absorb the tariff. Uh, so the job losses may not be so bad. And you could see a world in which a couple new manufacturing facilities do slightly tick up jobs. It really comes down to how companies end up coping with the tariff. And uh, we don't totally know yet. They, To their credit, they might find ways to avoid job losses, which would be a great thing. It doesn't work well into the rhetoric of the tariffs being awful, but it is really a testament to the innovation in this industry. Um, and again, SunPower specifically, they may get an exemption. Um, they have filed to uh, have their high efficiency panels not included in the tariff, and they may be successful in several weeks' time. We'll have to see. Yeah. I mean, in their most recent conference call, investors and announcing their earnings on that day was the day that they could file for an exemption. So they have 30 days now. Um to, before they find out whether they are exempt. And and of course, this is where it's hard to kind of discern reality, right? Like, of course, Tom Werner is going to get up and say, we're going to have to lay off 5% of our workforce because of these tariffs. Like, he needs to create as much momentum in favor of the company as possible. With that said, the great irony is that a company like SunPower, which is um, arguably one of the most important solar companies 
of of our time and one of the the, the most um, innovative solar companies in the industry is American solar companies is being penalized now. You know, American designed products um, that are installed often in America are getting penalized. So. Werner and SunPower clearly have a a strong case here. They clearly will suffer. They're going to see a lot of projects written off. They already have. Um, But, of course, there's going to be some political posturing here. And and I think as we get into this process of exemptions, that's the reason why why we're hearing so much about this from SunPower. Um, So it'll be be interesting to see what that exemption looks like. Right, right. It's not just them, of course. I think, you know, end phase is an interesting example, right? Like a module manufacturer, but they are being challenged by the shift toward an AC module product, which will be subject to the tariff. Um, and that's damaging um, because the uh, tariff is a percentage applied to customs value and AC modules, because there's the microinverter attached, um, come in at a higher import price. Um, so it's kind of an unfair side effect for Enphase, and Enphase is apparently appealing it. But that's just one of those examples of we have to see how this all plays out because you could see other elements of the solar industry, as Sia and others have said, be negatively impacted by these tariffs. So that's why the jobs number is so hard to discern at this point. It's it's just worth reiterating here some of the analysis that's come out from our team that you have echoed in your reporting, Julia. And that is that it takes years to scale up some of these factories. There are are a lot of global factors associated with building out a factory in a particular location. Um, There's a lot of demand in a lot of other places that make building factories elsewhere attractive. You have a pretty aggressive step down in the tariffs, um, this 5% a year step down in the tariffs um, that, you know, means that you have to build a factory pretty darn quick. And it's not clear whether that factory will be competitive in three, four years time. So um, according to our analysis, there's probably not a lot of production that will get built, um, cell or module assembly that will get built in this country as a result of the tariffs, just because the time frame is so slim. Yeah. And it, it, Solar cells and modules are really specific. So developers are looking for specific qualifications, timeline, quality. So I feel like, you know, you've got to have sort of the perfect mix to be able to build and produce here in the U.S., I think that quality point's an interesting one. That was something, again, Trump brought up in his speech, um, sort of knocking Chinese companies. But (laughs) there's an irony here that the companies that have uh, so far announced new factories in the U.S. are are foreign companies. So that kind of challenges Trump's point about foreign companies not having high quality products. And MJ Shao on, on our GTM research team pointed that out as well. He was saying it's an outdated myth to think that Chinese companies don't have good quality products because the government's actually invested very heavily in their solar manufacturers, which the U.S. has not. Um, and there's some just confusing political rhetoric about U.S. versus abroad. It, it the us versus them framing does not capture the complexity of modern manufacturing. Um, a lot of solar module uh, makers here in the U.S. prior in previous years were actually foreign owned. Cineva is foreign owned. Solar World's foreign owned. Um, does that mean they're U.S. companies or, or foreign companies? What does that say about their quality of their product? It just doesn't fit conveniently into Trump's narrative. Um, and again, the new the new factories opening up are are coming from from foreign from foreign nations. So if the U.S. wants to bring back U.S. solar manufacturing in its purest sense, which seems to be what the president would prefer, although we don't know, um, 
it really is going to take some serious R&D investment and a long-term stable policy to bring companies up. It's a point that our research team has made several times. The tariffs alone are not going to do that. No, no. And, and, and I mean, I'm, I'm going to channel Mr. Jigger Shaw here, who would probably chime in at this point and say, like, of of course he doesn't care about solar manufacturing. The the literally the only reason why he'd want to do this is so that he can stand up in front of governors and say that all these manufacturing jobs are coming back even when they're not. Like that is what he channels his energy into. That one moment when he can get up and say that I saved this industry even if it's not remotely true. That's how this president operates and um and I, I just think it's like 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 th- th- this effort should be seen in that context for sure. And I wonder if he'll if he'll face any blowback for that. If anywhere in the country people are like, "Hey, that is just not true," and I'm going to cast my vote vote differently in the midterms or in the next presidential election as a result. We'll have to see if solar becomes a voting issue. Yeah, I, su- I suspect so. I mean, solar and renewables are definitely a winning issue, no matter which candidate talks about them. I wonder also on the flip side, if the lack of coal jobs or the the lack of growth in the coal industry will hurt Trump. And I suspect that the narrative will be quite different in this next election cycle. Um, And it's more likely to to hurt the president. It's funny. I'm actually just seeing right now that Trump's going to impose tariffs on steel and aluminum imports, uh, steel to face 25% duty, duties and aluminum 10%. And a friend of mine in the solar industry just uh, texted that to me. I wonder if uh, there's more going to be more outrage over tariffs in the solar sector uh, from that news. Well, um, if you want to read our text version, our print version of this story, Julia's done some great reporting. So go to Green Tech Media and check it out. It'll be on our homepage or, or just follow the link in the show notes. Um, kudos to your work on this and staying on top of it, Julia. Um, let's turn to you now on something we may not know. What is your nugget of news or insight this week? My nugget, right. Um, okay, I have two I was taking from Catherine last week who brought three. Oh my God, everybody I'm is sorry, abusing their powers. You need to <laughs> listen to me. No, uh, I just couldn't resist. Uh, so the first one actually kind of ties into our earlier discussion about the Cokes and political influence. I thought it was interesting to see that there are 30 college campus groups, mostly Republican ones, that are coming out in support of a carbon tax being pushed in Washington uh, that gives money back to Americans through dividend checks. Um, Dylan Jones, a 21-year-old senior, spoke to Amy Harder at Axios saying, we can't continually deny that something isn't happening. Uh, Jones also supports gun rights and opposes abortion. He is in the conservative group, and yet you see him leading the charge on um a carbon tax and some climate action. Similarly, we saw on the other end of the political spectrum, um, David Hogg, a Parkland school shooting survivor. Um, I think he's come out saying he's on the progressive political end of things, um, tweeted out that um, a radical idea, how about we don't spend money on arming teachers, we spend it on educating students in STEM and do more cool stuff like create jobs and renewables. Uh, and support independent American energy resources like wind and solar. So you have the next generation, different different perspectives coming at it in different parts of the country saying we need to do something about climate and clean energy. I thought that was interesting and kind of encouraging and maybe a grassroots um, antidote to some of the big money and spending that we're seeing going on. My second item is, um, did you know <laughs> that there is a an accelerator in Alaska called Launch Alaska. Um, I did they, not know. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, they plan to fund at least 30 innovative companies to meet Alaska's local energy, food, water, transportation challenges. Um, last month, they released their 2018 cohort, which includes four clean tech companies. They're working on off-grid solutions, um, some next-generation wind turbine technology, using AI to help manage energy projects. I just thought it was super interesting that Alaska is putting itself on the scene here. They've got partnerships with the Air Force, the Navy, NREL. Uh, so who knows? Maybe we'll see more folks moving up to Alaska and working on some innovative stuff up there. Right. And Jiggers also tried to tap into that by getting uh, like their sovereign wealth fund to invest millions of dollars into some of the projects that Generate Capital is supporting. So it's not all just uh, oil in Alaska. There's There's increasing diversity up in that state. Catherine, tell us something we may not know. What's your story this week? Let me guess, you have two. I have only one thing. You'll be proud of me. So Utility Dive just released their State of the Electric Utility 2018 report. And it's worth looking at because it kind of gives you a snapshot of where utilities are right now, what they're thinking about, what their concerns are. Um, of course, the number one concern is policy uncertainty as at per usual. Um, there's also resource planning uncertainty. But what was interesting is that almost all 76% of the utilities wanted some performance based standards rather than traditional cost of service which was amazing. So they really are shifting. They want to change their business model. They're looking for ways to change their business model and they want their regulators to help them do that. So uh, you can see this trend shifting already. And you know, once we can get the regulators on board and thinking the same way, I think uh, I think there we may have reached a tipping point. Speaking of tipping points, I think we're reaching a tipping point in the industry right now where more people are uh, helping elevate powerful women in this industry and making sure that their voices are heard in the media, on panels, um, and that people understand the amazing work that they're doing in this in the clean tech sector. And um, green tech media is also um, getting uh, developing an organization to make sure that women uh, along the grid edge are getting their voices heard in this industry. Um, and so we're putting together this organization called Women Advancing Grid Edge, which we will be launching in the coming weeks. Um, we're going to be putting together gatherings, uh, forums, um, and and other resources for women to network in this industry. And, and our first um, event is going to be at GTM's Blockchain Summit in New York City next week. And um, I know, you know, Catherine has just been an extraordinary resource and, you know, working hard to make sure that women are are advancing in this in this space. So, um, you know, I, I think there are just a, a, an amazing amount of efforts in the industry right now. And we hope that the women advancing in, in Grid Edge will be a good con contribution to that. That's great. And there are binders full of these smart women. <laughs> Indeed, Catherine. Okay, well, I think we can call it at that. Uh, what another fantastic conversation. I enjoyed it thoroughly. If you enjoyed this conversation, tweet it out. You can um, follow Julia Piper and Catherine Hamilton on Twitter. Flag them. Flag me. Flag the Energy Gang account. Um, you can also contact us at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. We'd like to hear your story ideas, and you can tweet those out to us as well. Uh, make sure to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I put out the call last week, and a ton of you 
um, gave us some new reviews on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate that so much. Like, really, to know that we have people who are willing to to act that quickly is very uh, gratifying. And if you have not done so and really want to support the show, that's probably the best way you can do it. Just go on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use and give us a rating and review. Um, Catherine, have a fantastic week. I will not talk to you next week. I will be at GTM's Blockchain Summit, but I will catch you in a couple weeks. That sounds great. And I would love to thank Julia for jumping in and replacing Jigger for a couple weeks. It's been really fun. You've been awesome, Julia. This has been Uh, really fun. I'm too Canadian to be controversial, but I did my best. (laughs) (laughs) There were a couple moments I tried to, to channel Jigger, and we'll have Julia on many more podcasts to come. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Thanks to Catherine and Julia. And I'm Stephen Lacey. We are the Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. 